You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, it's Lauren Lee Chen and the NBA regular season is finally here. As we embark upon this journey for another season, I just want to thank everyone for checking us out again. Especially if you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. For this episode, we're joined by Brad Bodkin, senior NBA writer for CBSSports.com and co-author of the Dan O'Brien memoir, Clearing Hurdles. A scary anecdote about his early life was that when he was a baby, Brad was almost kidnapped when a man took him out of his house and carried him down the street. Luckily, the police were able to stop the man before he got too far away. Brad's joining us for part two of our season preview series, and we'll be looking up and down the Western Conference with him. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us, Brad. How's it going? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing really well. We're raring to go. The season's upon us now. So first, I'm going to assume that you, like many other analysts around the NBA, virtually everyone have the Golden State Warriors and it's here all by themselves. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's right, who do you have in that group just right behind them? In, in the Western Conference, I still think that the Rockets are the best team not named the Warriors. I think the Rockets got worse, perhaps significantly. I think the loss of, of Trevor Ariza and Luke Mbamute. The biggest reason the Rockets were able to push the Warriors to seven games last year was their switchability on defense. They bring all those like-sized perimeter defenders, and it really forced Golden State into an isolation game, which goes against everything they stand for. And and they had Golden State on the ropes and probably would have won that series if Chris Paul stayed healthy. And that was uh, largely attributed to, to again, their defensive versatility. And they lost a lot with Ariza and Bob Mute. And picking up Carmelo Anthony doesn't exactly address that. Now, I, I talked to Daryl Morey at Summer League this year, and, and he said, uh, you know, perhaps vaguely, but but pretty telling, to judge their roster on April 15th, which is, of course, the close of the regular season, meaning he's going to be tinkering with this roster, probably tending to their defensive needs as often as he can from now, certainly until the trade deadline. So I don't think it's a finished product yet in Houston. But as currently constructed, I I still think they're the second best team in the West, but the gap has shrunk. I think Utah is right there with them and can very easily fight for a second seed. And I think... OKC, before Roberson went down, which more bad news, last year the Thunder were one of the best teams in the league, uh, statistically and to the eye test, when their their top five guys were out there. When Roberson went out, they went in the tank. This year, if Roberson had been healthy from the start, I think he'll miss too much time. He's going to be out now probably through December. They, I don't think they can make up that ground. Had he been healthy, I think they could have pushed for the second seed. I think they have an argument as the best defensive team in the league. I think they've taken over what Houston was able to do last year with their length on the perimeter. Mm-hmm. So I think OKC is really good. I don't think the regular season will reflect that because, again, they'll lose a lot without Roberson those first two months. 
So come playoff time, they might be the five seed, but I think they're very dangerous in the Western Conference as well. Okay, sounds good. So we're going to ask you more specifically about all those teams you mentioned. I think that it's sad. It makes sense that a lot of fans just kind of discount the rest of the league storylines given the dominance of the Warriors, and they have been historically great. But as you just highlighted, there are so many exciting teams and storylines going into the year that people can look to and get excited about, even if it is maybe a a formality that the Warriors are going to win it all, barring two superstar injuries maybe. But the most recent offseason craziness has to do with Jimmy Butler, who about four weeks ago demanded a trade away from the Timberwolves. I'm curious to hear... From your standpoint, how you think this whole thing likely shakes out and what this means, what the larger implications are for the team and also for Butler personally? Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a bit to unpack there. I mean, first and foremost, this isn't a, a unique situation to Jimmy Butler and the Timberwolves. This has obviously become the way the NBA is now. I've talked to GMs around the league, and, and effectively, whatever contract a superstar player signs, it is for a year less because once they get into that walk year, uh, as soon as they say they want out, you basically have to let them out because you're going to lose them for nothing. So a guy signs a four-year deal. It's really a three-year deal. And it's the hardest thing for GMs to navigate now. You know, you can't get equal return because you just don't have the leverage. But you can't win if you get rid of the guy. Uh, and it's yeah. just it's very, very, very difficult. There's no right answer. I didn't like the way Jimmy Butler handled that practice situation, I mean, frankly, I think the whole thing was staged. It just, you know, Rachel Nichols and ESPN just happens to be courtside for a sit-down interview right after he goes postal on his team. I don't, I don't like that. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's how Kobe led. That's how Jordan led. He, he forced the best out of his guys. He said, listen, come talk to me when Jimmy Butler is Kobe or, or Jordan. You know, Jimmy Butler is not the kind of guy that single-handedly transforms your team. He certainly makes the Timberwolves better. They're in no way a championship contender with him, nor do I think any team is a championship contender with him as the best player. So all of that said, you know, he's leveraging this situation as if he makes or breaks a team. I don't think that's the case. Now, Miami, I know we're sticking mostly to the West here, but I've I've talked to a lot of people in Miami. I've been down at Miami's training camp. Of course, they've been the team most hotly rumored to be in the Butler sweepstakes with the, the number one player being Josh Richardson, who's turned into a stud very quickly. And for a team like Miami, it might be worth reaching a little bit and giving up some assets to get Jimmy Butler because you don't have the cap space to sign him next year. So that's, of course, the X factor in all of this is these teams that that might want to trade for Jimmy Butler have cap space to get him next year. And we've seen it. The Lakers passed on trading for Paul George. They passed on trading for Kawhi Leonard. These teams would rather err on the side of potentially getting a guy in free agency and not having to give up young assets. To get him. Another layer to this is I've also talked to a lot of front office, I shouldn't say a lot, but a handful of front office people around the league who question whether Jimmy Butler is an advantageous addition to your team, being that Tom Thibodeau players do not age very well at all. And when he signs his max deal next year, he's going to be 30 years old. By the back end of that, he's going to be in the 34, 35 year old range. If you look right. at guys like Noah, Derek Rose, you're probably going to be paying for a reduced version of Jimmy Butler at the end of that contract, meaning you have to maximize the first two years of that contract 
to really make it worth it. So you've got to be a team that's ready to win now. Now paying Jimmy Butler a max contract that maybe he doesn't live up to at the end of that deal was one thing. Paying him that money and giving up two young assets to get him in the first place becomes a very hefty price. So that's a long way of saying I really don't know how it's going to shake out. News just came out about 20 minutes ago that Jimmy Butler's going to play the opening game with the Wolves against the Spurs. So right now the talks between the Wolves and the Heat are dead. I, again, I don't think those other teams that were originally included in the trade talks will be as talked about because, again, they don't have quite the incentive to give up assets. They have cap room next year. So Miami was always the team that was possibly going to give up more. Those talks appear to be dead right now. I think Butler's going to stay in Minnesota for a while. I think Tom Thibodeau is just stubborn enough to take this thing to the edge. But listen, the Spurs said they were going to do that too. Then they traded Kawhi. You know, Indiana said they were going to do that. Then they traded George. There's going to come a day where the Wolves are going to realize, look, we're not winning the title this year anyway. Jimmy Butler's going to walk next year. We got to get something for him. So he's not going to be in Minnesota all year. I would virtually guarantee that. I, I think the timeline is stretching out now. So I want to thank you also for providing a real-time update. I should have said in the question, we're recording Sunday afternoon yeah. and the season starts Tuesday. And it's just a, a frenetic situation. A lot of things could happen before this makes air. So yeah, just stay tuned. But that's where it is right now, Sunday afternoon. And now I'll kick it over to Lauren. Thanks, Aaron. I want to return to talking about Houston. As you said in your first answer, and like a lot of analysts around the league, there's a prevailing perception that they took a bit of a hit this offseason, especially on the defensive end. You expect probably a sizable impact from losing Trevor Ariza and Luke Richard and Bob Mute. Also, less talked about a little bit is losing Jeff Bizdelic as well, their assistant coach. But you still had them at the presumptive number two spot behind the Warriors, precluding any in-season moves, as you alluded to. What about their team right now makes you have that assessment? Well, the obvious things, right? They can just flat out score it. I mean, that, that starting five, moving Eric Gordon into the starting lineup is just going to be a monster. You know, it's, it's just a monster five-man unit. It depletes their bench a little bit. That's going to be a bit of an issue, and it's going to deplete their defense a bit. I mean, you flip out Eric Gordon for Trevor Reza, you're going to you're going to lose some defense. But look, that five man unit: Chris Paul, James Harden, Clint Capella, uh, PJ Tucker, and Gordon is a monster unit. And uh, Mike D'Antoni is able to stagger the minutes as he did last year between Paul and Harden to where he has a Hall of Fame point guard running the bulk of their offense at all times, which covers a lot of gaps. They play a very simple style, so it's a style that's sustainable, right? They don't have a lot of moving parts. They space the floor. They give the ball to Harden and Paul. They run a ton of high pick and roll, and they wait to get the matchup they want, and they exploit it one-on-one. And if you play that simply and you have guys who can get their shot or create it for somebody else every single possession, you're not going to have a ton of drop-off. And in the regular season, you can score like that. Even if they drop to, say, a 16 or 17 defensive team, they're going to be plus 55 wins as long as they stay motivated. And I still think they have the edge because of that ability to score the ball against, say, a team like Utah, who I think is probably the the third best team in the West. If it came down to it in those teams in a a seven-game series, I still think Utah would would have a harder time putting the ball in the basket. Yeah, and I think the addition of James Ennis makes up for some of the loss of at least Luke Richard and Bob Mute. And 
probably Carmelo Anthony can be used if if he buys into the system at least enough to be not a not a net negative. Yeah, listen, I think that listen that could be a stretch. I mean, last year, you know, plus minus numbers can be tough to get anything from because it's all about who right. you're playing with. But look, the, the Thunder were not a good team with Carmelo Anthony on the floor. You know, let's just call this what it is. Carmelo Anthony, for a long time, the number one thing that he has brought to the table is his ability to score. He's not going to do that in an isolation situation very often. Now, he does give the Rockets the opportunity to, you know, maximize some switches where, you know, they run some high pick and roll with him and, and Paul or Harden, and he, and he gets a smaller guy on and they go down to the post. He can still cook a little bit in that situation, but that's not an efficient style of offense, and the Rockets are more focused on efficiency than any team in the league. So they're not going to go to really the one thing that he offers that much, which means effectively he's going to be a floor spacer, which is what the Thunder tried to sell him as with Westbrook and George. Oh, we'll, we'll space the floor with Mello and we'll let these guys go to work. Well, what we saw is, you know, Mello's just not that good of a shooter anymore. Right. You know, so you can space the floor with a lot of guys in the NBA that, you know, 34% of the time or whatever it is, they can make a three-pointer. That is nothing that's going to take you to any sort of elite level in the NBA to have a, a third scorer on the floor who can stand outside the three-point line and every once in a while make one. You know, and that's really the reality of it is when you talk about what Carmelo Anthony brings versus what he takes away, he is a net negative player over the long haul and certainly in isolated situations down the stretch of games where if he's on the floor, because look, all these big picture numbers about the Rockets, they're going to look great on paper. They're plus, look, it, playoff games, certainly against, say, like the Warriors, if they match up or, or, the, or the Jazz and they're in a game six. And there's three minutes left in the game. I don't care what you did all year long. Mm -hmm. The Warriors are going to isolate Carmelo Anthony every single possession, and he can't guard his lunch. And they're going to force the ball into his hands and take it out of Harden and Paul's hands on the other end. And he's not going to make enough shots to beat you in those situations. So I do not think he's in any way uh, the answer. Right. And that's exactly how the Rockets themselves played against him last season. For Utah, who said you think are probably right there behind Houston in terms of teams of the West. They had a red hot finish last season after Rudy Gobert returned from injury in their last 35 games of the season. They had a 29 and six record. One of the best teams in the NBA, Donovan Mitchell started emerging as a potential future star in the league. Ricky Rubio got a little bit more comfortable in Quinn Snyder's offense and Rudy Gobert established himself as possibly the best defensive player in the NBA. What do you see as their ceiling this season? Do you think they could be as good as they were in that last stretch of the last season? Yeah, I mean, yes, they, they can be that good. They, you know, they're going to be that good in the regular season, I firmly believe. But again, this this comes down to a playoff series. And what happened, even though they were whatever they were, 29-6 and six or whatever you said down the stretch and one of the best teams in the league, you know, when it came down to it against Houston, they just flat out couldn't score the ball enough, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that's probably that you asked me what their ceiling is. Look, all things go right. Everything goes right. They get the right matchup. They play at the top of their game. I could see them in the conference finals. You know, they're not beating the Warriors. So that that's that's the ceiling. I think somewhere between the second round and, and the conference finals is is where they'll end up. The thing for Utah is they can't have individual regression. So Donovan Mitchell wouldn't be the first guy to have a great rookie year and then at least kind of have a linear second year, if not regress a little bit. You know, there's the same concern with, with Jason Tatum or Ben Simmons. 
you know, to think that, that there's just going to be automatic improvement every year. Well, if, you know, if Donovan Mitchell improves every single year, by the, by the fourth year in the league, he's going to be the best player in the league. So that's probably not going to happen. So he had a, he had an unbelievable rookie season. Uh, Rudy Gobert was defensive player of the year, as you mentioned. Joe Ingles had a career year in terms of scoring. He took his, I think he took his average up to around 12 points. He was one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Ricky Rubio had a career shooting year. Jay Crowder was really good after being really bad in Cleveland. So you start to add all this up, and the product of the Jazz being what they were was about five guys having the best year of their career. If they have drop-off from that, which is not unreasonable to assume, that's where the Jazz suddenly you know, might be being a little bit overhyped. Now, there are reasons that those guys played like that. I've talked to Joe Ingles. I've talked to Ricky Rubio. The way that they play in Utah, the inclusive style – the way that everybody touches the ball. Joe Ingles, when I was talking to him a couple weeks ago, he pointed to Rodney Hood, who was a 16, 17-point-a-game guy in Utah. He went to Cleveland and fell off the map because when you go to Cleveland, you play with LeBron James, you're just a floor spacer. You just stand around the three-point line. You're not involved in the offense, uh, and you're not encouraged to shoot the ball. Ricky Rubio was never encouraged to shoot the ball in Minnesota. And so it's not really an accident that these guys come to Utah and the best version of themselves reveals itself. And, and I, you know, again, I've talked to Dennis Lindsay, the GM in Utah. I've talked to Quinn Snyder. Everybody there in Utah says the same thing. That they're becoming sort of like the Spurs where you get the best version of the players. Guys that have been cut on another team suddenly show up on your team and they're good players. You know, a Danny Green. Uh, a Marco Bellinelli, they, they show up in San Antonio and suddenly they're good players. They couldn't even make the roster somewhere else. Uh, and that's what Utah is. They get the best out of every player. So as long as they do that again, which can't be assumed, but as long as they do, I think they're right there with Houston as the second best team in the West. So let's assume you have the Warriors, the Rockets, and the Jazz, three, say, virtual locks to make the playoffs. For those remaining five spots, there are a lot of potential playoff teams that are right there. You consider the Nuggets, the Thunder, Blazers, Lakers, Wolves with or without Butler, the Pelicans, Clippers, Spurs. Who do you think makes it out of that whole jumble? Well, it's probably easier to say who I think is out. And I think the the teams that have the toughest road are the Clippers and the Spurs and the Timberwolves if they lose Butler. Maybe one of those teams gets in. You know, Denver's a hot team right now. Everybody, everybody loves talking about Denver. And I, you know, I love them for all the obvious reasons. You know, can they stop anyone? You know, they, it's similar to Utah. You know, only the reverse. Can you know? Can Utah put the ball in the basket enough? Can Can Denver stop anyone? I do think Denver gets in. I think OKC is pretty much a lock. They'll get Roberson back. You know, pre All Star break, and and I think they'll be one of the better teams over the second half, and they'll secure you know perhaps a top four seed and be really dangerous when they get in. You know, the Lakers are in. You know, I think there's some debate out there. You know, are they even a lock to make the playoffs? And I can understand that. They got a weird roster. They, you know, I don't know if you guys want to talk about the Lakers, want to go into a little more detail with them. But, I, you know, I, I think it's pretty safe to say they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, but you're right. All those teams right there are jumbled up. New Orleans. Uh, I was in New Orleans for training camp. They're, you know, there's some, there's some things to like there. There's some things not to like. I don't think you can say any of those teams are an absolute lock outside of the three that you mentioned, and I believe OKC uh, and the Lakers. That would be five teams. I'd be very surprised if, if one of those five teams didn't get in. 
Yeah, this Western Conference playoff race, especially toward the bottom half, I think is going to be really entertaining and down to the wire. Yeah. We all saw how the standings shook out last season. I think it was like from seeds three through eight yeah. separated by a couple games. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I think people can doubt Greg Popovich and his team at their own peril. Then again, this is a unique circumstance. They finally granted Kawhi Leonard his wish and traded him away. They got DeMar DeRozan. Other players were involved in the trade, but they have a lot of injuries. They've been hit really hard by injury, especially at the point guard position. So they let a diminished aging Tony Parker walk in free agency. They have now DeJounte Murray's out for the season with a torn ACL. Derek White tore a ligament in his heel, also a point guard. Combo guard Lonnie Walker, the fourth, their, their rookie. He's going to be out for a little bit after tearing his meniscus. And I think the Rudy Gay heel injury is not seen to be as severe, but that's also another example of how banged up they are. What kind of challenge is it going to be for Greg Popovich this time around? Huge challenges. I mean, look, Greg Popovich is a great coach. You win in the NBA to a large degree off of personnel. You know, all this talk about all these years, the Spurs were sort of this homemade team that just got the most out of everybody. I mean, yes, there's truth in that on the fringe. You know, they got the most out of Danny Green. They got the most out of Marco Bellinelli. They got the most out of Boris Diaw, Bruce Bowen, whoever you want. But look, they were one of the best teams in the league because they had Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Monty Ginobili, the three Hall of Famers. And they don't have that anymore. Then they had Kawhi Leonard. They don't have that anymore. So Greg Popovich is not a, you know, a complete wizard here. At some point, you have to have the players. And y'all remember when Mark Jackson came out and he said that, that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson were the best, the best shooting backcourt ever, right? Y'all mm-hmm. remember when he said that? Okay. And everybody's like, oh, that's too soon. We got to wait. We got to wait. Well, if you wait until something happens to then recognize it, then you haven't done anything. And that's the same thing with the Spurs. Everybody's just going to err on the side of the, well, they're the Spurs. They always make it. Well, some year they're not going to make it. And if you just wait until it happens before you say it, then you're not saying anything. You know, I don't think I don't think they're going to make it. I, like I don't think they're going to make it. I'm ready to say that. I'm ready to go ahead. It's the same thing as Curry and Clay Thompson being the best. They were the best shooters ever. We all knew it. I don't need any more time. I know it. And I don't need any more time to know if the Spurs are going to the playoffs. They're not. They're not good enough. They don't have good enough players, period. That's why we have you on here, speaking truth to power and defying conventional wisdom at every turn. This is fun. This is this is what we should be doing, and not just everyone agreeing with everyone else. I don't know. I don't know who's agreeing. Like, are there people out there saying the Spurs are going to be good? I mean, you know, the NBA is about players. I don't know if they're saying that they're going to be a top. I don't think anyone's saying they're going to be an elite team in the Western Conference. That would be crazy. But I think a lot of people go off of they've made the the playoffs every year for whatever it is 18 yeah. straight i don't know yeah. if that's the correct statistic but yeah. that uh, they have a good shot of doing it again but look look would it be the, look, listen would it be the most surprising thing in the world if they grabbed the 8 seed and got blasted in the first round i mean i guess not but i mean the the, the moral of the story here is the spurs are not a good team they've got probably the biggest uphill battle to make the playoffs of any team that has any kind of shot, you know, outside the Kings and the Suns, they've got the biggest uphill battle to actually make the playoffs. And, and so look, you know, you can scratch off a ticket and hit it. I, I guess it could happen. I, I wouldn't bet on it. 
the odds are not in their favor. They have a lot, a lot of things working against them right now. That's that's undeniable. Hold on, but let's look at it the other way. What's working for them? Because because I don't want to hear about the past. Like the past has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with this. So what's working for them? They have a predominantly mid-range, you know, pseudo superstar in Lamarcus Aldridge. Mm-hmm. You know, Dejounte Murray was going to be an elite point guard defensively. He's out. I mean, their defense can be whatever. And I just what's going for them. I think that that's a legitimate point, and and you've proven that they don't have a lot right now to convince me that they're better than a lot of these teams in such a deep conference. So I can't really answer your question. So I, I think right. I think that's a good good argument. Got Aaron on board. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. This is Sekou Smith of NBA TV, NBA.com, and the Hangtime Podcast. You're doing the right thing if you're listening to On the NBA Beat. Just quickly, Luka Doncic, do you see him as one of the most NBA-ready oh, rookies in a while, stud. even though he's only 19, total 19 stud. and a half? Total stud. You know, when people are doing this, all this draft analysis, uh, and I'm talking to scouts through it, and look, there are... There are things to look at, you know, indicators of what type of player a guy's going to be. But to some degree, we have forgotten about just watching a guy play basketball, you know. And this guy can play basketball. You can't teach instincts like he has, the instincts that he has for the way the floor is spaced, for where his his trailers are running in transition, feeling where the kickout pass is supposed to go to, a beat ahead of the defense. Uh, you can't teach these things. Trey Young has these things out with the Hawks as well. Don't let his shooting from 35 feet fool you. These guys feel the floor. And I say the same thing about Lonzo Ball with the Lakers. You cannot teach that. And you've already seen it with Luka Doncic, what he's been able to do as a playmaker. The guy is going to come in as a power forward who can legitimately run pick and roll or elite point guard level pick and rolls as the ball handler. There's nothing he can't do on the floor offensively. He has the size to become an adequate switchable defender. This guy is ready to play right now. I think he's going to be a longtime all-star. And that trade, that draft day trade of him for Trey Young is going to be very, very interesting for a really long time. I talked to Travis Schlank with the Hawks uh, quite a bit this offseason, the GM out there, and he told me that their draft room was split on Trey Young and Luka Doncic. They thought they were equal players for all the reasons I just said. They, they see the floor. They make plays. They can score for themselves. They set up others. That, that Just that intangible instinct to play basketball. They have it, and they thought they were equal players. So when Dallas threw the number one pick, the future number one pick, to Atlanta, that's what swung the tide. They said, hey, we think these guys are equal players. We'll get an extra draft pick out of it on top of it. Now the Mavericks, they obviously think that Doncic is enough better than Trey Young to warrant giving up a first-round pick, and it's hard to knock them. I think both those guys are going to be sensational players, and Luka Doncic is, is one of the most exciting reasons to watch the NBA this year. You mentioned earlier you spent some time with the Pelicans at their training camp this offseason. They moved on from DeMarcus Cousins. They added Julius Randle. Last postseason, I think it surprised a lot of people when they swept Portland. At least it surprised a lot of people how lopsided that series was. Yeah. What were your biggest takeaways both from that series and also your visit to their training camp? I think one of my biggest takeaways from the series was one that I think a lot of casual fans had, which is Drew Holiday's really good. I don't know if a lot of casual fans realize that. You know, I was talking to Alvin Gentry 
when I was in New Orleans, and he made no bones. He said, I think we have the, the best two-way tandem in the league. Uh, he said, you know, you can talk about Durant and Curry. You can talk about Harden and Paul. Talk about George and Westbrook. Talk about Kyrie and whoever you think the second-best player is on the Celtics. Uh, but in terms of two-way players, it's hard to argue that Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis aren't the best two-way combo in the league. They're both elite on both sides of the floor. And by and large, that's what will determine what the Pelicans become this year. How far can their two best players take them? Because that's what they ran into last year. All the things that they implemented in terms of picking up the pace when DeMarcus Cousins went down, they became a breakneck speed team, and they they really picked it up defensively. You know, I think that's a little bit of a of a misnomer that they became the team in Cousins' absence that they did because they were able to play faster. If you look at their transition numbers, they really weren't that great. And they really didn't get that much better when Cousins went out. What got better was the defense. They jumped up to a top five defensive team because of the versatility that they employed now with putting more like-sized guys on the court. And you combine that with playing at a greater pace, shooting earlier in the shot clock, you get the other team a little bit chaotic, and now your defense can really lock in. And that's what really made them that team. But in the end, they just flat out ran into a better team, right? They didn't have as much talent as the team that eventually beat them in the playoffs. And that's, I think, what will largely be the the case this year. It's a question of how Julius Randle will fit next to Anthony Davis. Can they play Julius Randle? I talked to Alvin Gentry about this. Can they can they feel like they can play Julius Randle and Nikola Mirotic together? You know, that could be a defensive liability. Now, Randle has shown that he can be a good individual defender when he's focused. He's not always focused. That's something that Darren Ehrman, who runs the defense out in New Orleans, is really focused on this year, getting the most out of him defensively. But look, if you if you know you want Miritich on the floor to space the floor, right, and, and give Davis as much room to operate as possible. You want Randall out there as a guy who can be a secondary playmaker uh, to guys like Holiday. And, you know, I'm not a big Alfred Payton fan, so I don't let's, let's not go there. But if you want all those guys on the floor at the same time, which is probably the best version of the Pelicans, you're going to have some defensive questions. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to how much can Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis cover for? That's it. How much can they cover for on both ends? Because they're going to have some holes with the other lineups that they have to play. Also, you talked briefly about there were some projections that had the Lakers nearly with LeBron missing the playoffs. I think that's a little bit overblown. I don't think, I think, as you said, there's any chance that a LeBron James-led Lakers team misses the playoff. But maybe, 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 but let's think about this. Let's think about this. Last year, the Cavs won 50 games. LeBron had maybe his best season ever. And the Cavs still only won 50 games in the East. So if right. you figure that being in the West is worth at least three wins or three losses, however you choose to look at it, at least. So now you're down to 47 wins because I don't think the Lakers around LeBron are that much better than the Cavs were. First of all, they don't have a number two as good as Kevin Love was. So there's a drop off there. Now, if you want to say as a group, Kuzma and Ingram and Lonzo and Hart and everything, you know, sort of the weird pieces that they put around them add up to more than the secondary players in Cleveland, I'll buy that. But do they add up more than the difference between playing in the West as opposed to the East? I don't think so. So I think roughly you're talking about the same level of threat in the Lakers and the Cavs last year, which is around 50 wins. If they have even a two to three week injury, now you're talking about a 46 win team that is grinding to get the eight seed. So 
when we talk about these teams and all these these things that they have in place that we feel are indicators that say they're going to be a playoff team, that's always assuming full strength. You know, what this comes down to is margin of error. And the Lakers don't have a great margin of error. If everything goes right and Lonzo picks up his game and Ingram makes a jump that everybody thinks he's going to and Kuzma, you know, wasn't maybe the player that, you know, some people think last year he was what he was because you're playing in a free-flowing offense with really no expectations and you can just gun away on your own terms. When you play with LeBron, you don't play on your own terms. So is he just going to be one of these guys who jacks up a bunch of shots and is an inefficient scorer? Maybe. But let's say you get the best version of Kuzma, the best version of Ball, the best version of Ingram. And LeBron, in his 16th year, plays 75-plus games again. If he, if not, if all these things don't happen, the Lakers don't have a ton of margin for error. So all these, I think, projections, my, my own included, are based on everything going according to plan for the Lakers. They only need really one, two to three week significant injury where they go, you know, three and nine over a tough stretch. And you're looking at a 46 to 48 win team, which is right on the brink, right on the brink. So I think the Lakers are Mm -hmm. in, but their margin for error is, is not great. So I know you follow the Warriors closely and DeMarcus Cousins, I see as, a low risk, potentially high reward move that they made by acquiring the temperamental superstar. Now I know he tore his Achilles late in January and it may be a while before we see him back on the court. Steve Kerr said last week, he's ramping up his conditioning. We'll see when he actually returns, but what do you make of his addition and how, how much more dominant can it make this team? Even if he doesn't um, come back for a while. It's stupid. It's stupid. I mean, even if he's 80% of himself, you know, by February, March, whatever, you know, this is so clearly the most talented team in the history of the NBA, you know, maybe in sports history. It is absolutely ridiculous. Now, they've lost some depth, but it's, it's, it's truly ridiculous that you can make a case that they've got six Hall of Famers, five of them in their absolute prime. You know, I think Iguodala is a, is a fringe Hall of Famer. Outside of that, numbers-wise, Boogie's going to be a Hall of Famer, you know, if he comes back from this injury. And the other four are locks. It's unprecedented, the talent level on this team. You know, you said earlier there's a lot of storylines in this league, even if the end result is a formality. You know, I don't like that. You know, I think the NBA is a little bit becoming too dependent on the offseason beefs. You know, that Kevin Durant going on C.J. McCollum's podcast and, and telling them they stink and, you know, because because when it comes to the season, we kind of know what's going to happen, right? Barring injury, yeah. And, and I don't think that's a that's a great place to be. Now the NBA is in a great place ratings wise, and you know everything's trending up. It's like the old baseball card Beckett that had you know it's like the King Griffey Junior, the old upper deck card. Man, it's double arrows up, right? Like everything's great for the NBA, but a lot of that is off the court. Like free agency is more exciting than the season. Like who's going to go where? That you know. That's almost equally responsible for the popularity of the league because when it gets down to it, you've got a really, really long regular season that the best teams don't take that seriously. And the playoffs, barring injury, you've got a pretty, you know, sort of foregone conclusion situation. So these changes they're talking about making in terms of seeding one through 16, I'm a huge proponent of these things. I don't care so much that you need to get the top 16 teams in. Like if, if one team in the East makes the playoffs that wouldn't have made it in the West, it's like, you know, they're an eight seed anyway. Who cares? What I'm interested in is the path to the title. You know, I'd like to see the Rockets have to play the Celtics in the conference finals. 
And then the two best teams, the Rockets and the Warriors, actually play in the finals. All this talk, all these years about LeBron James, oh, he's been to eight straight finals. Like, you know what? I don't care. He was in the East. I mean, if, if a really good high school team goes down and plays the junior high league, like they're going to go to the championship. So it's just been it's been an easy way out. Bottom line, it doesn't take away from LeBron's greatness, but he's playing in a weaker league. Let's see if he makes the finals this year. He won't. He won't even come close because he's playing in the West. So we can change the idea that this that this league is just a foregone conclusion, which right now I believe that it is, barring injury. Although I do think Boston can scare Golden State. We can change this idea that the most excitement around the NBA is around everything except the results of the games, which we largely know. So that's sort of my rant for the day. Uh, I, I hate that we can pretty much predict who's going to win. In the NFL, you don't know who's going to win. In baseball, you don't know who's going to win. And look, you're not going to go see a movie 15 times that you know the ending to. You know, it's got to run across T- It's got to run across TNT. I'm not going back to the theater. You know, like if, Sha- <laughs> if Shawshank, you know, every, you know, it rolls across TNT. Like, okay, I'll watch it. But I ain't going to the theater. I'm not setting out to go watch something that I already know, you know, what's up with it. So I don't like that. And I think Boogie Cousins just does even more of that for Golden State. I mean, look, the one thing over this whole run that perhaps they were 2% susceptible to was a team going big. And now we got the best big man in the league, too. You know, if he's healthy, what are you going to do? Are you going to run Kevin Durant, Steph Curry pick and roll? If somehow you manage to defend that, they throw it in the post to one of the best post scorers of the last 20 years? Good luck. You know, and the thing is, you're you're absolutely right in saying that he's pure gravy because if it doesn't work, they're only on a one year deal for five million bucks. I mean, Rajon Rondo's making double what this guy's making. Don't just sit him down. You're like, hey, Boogie, not working. Take a seat. We're still the best team ever. So I don't really care about Boogie. You know, he he does not matter. Now it's good for him. He gets one year to go play in a great offense to show that he's healthy. He'll go get his max deal next year. You know, he's, he's going to have every opportunity to be highlighted this year. He's never going to see one-on-one matchups like he will this year. I mean, this guy's seeing triple teams in his career. This guy's going to be walking to the rim. You know, defenders glued to Durant, glued to Curry, glued to Clay. <laughs> Cousins is going to be dunking on six foot seven guys because they got to play small to keep up with the perimeter. It's, uh, listen, man, it's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. So I know we had you on here to talk about the Western Conference, but I don't want to waste the opportunity. This is the last question. Just educate us, if you will, on what you took away from the Celtics camps. A lot of people are excited about Boston this season. Well, rightfully so. You know, I I legitimately think the Celtics can do to the Warriors what the Rockets did last year and really put them in a pickle and at least force them to play their best basketball which most teams don't have to do. You know, they run out there with 80% of their best, and they roll you out the door. So Boston can make them play their best. Uh, they can scare them. And the reasons you know, are pretty simple. That you know, First of all, the defensive versatility. We saw Houston lay the blueprint. Boston is now the team, along with a healthy OKC, that I believe is most equipped to put that kind of lineup on the floor. I mean, if you look at that five-man lineup, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, Al Horford, those four guys can pretty much – for a reasonable amount of time, guard one through five. They can switch anything. They can play physical. They can guard quicker guys. They're going to be a stout, stout defense that is specifically tailored to stop a perimeter attack like Golden State. And then on top of those four, you've got 
you know, Kyrie Irving, who I think is a sublime player. Uh, I think he gets a little, little too, too much criticism for, you know, that he, he plays one-on-one too much. I was talking to Kyrie uh, in Boston and he said, you know, it's two focuses this year on the court uh, is that two, three, four position. There's, there's been a really hotly contested kind of competition going on in, in practice for Boston between Gordon Hayward, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They all effectively play the same position. They're all effectively the same size. They're pretty close to the same kind of player. Uh, and, and Kyrie Irving says these guys going at each other in practice. They're, they're having tougher competition in practice than they're going to have in 95% of the games that they play this year. And as a result, the guys are getting really good. And they all have something individually to prove. Jason Tatum wants to prove that his rookie year wasn't a fluke. Jalen Brown wants to prove that he can jump to be an all-star, has never been an all-star yet. And Gordon Hayward wants to prove that he can be the player he was before the injury. So guys having individual things to prove in a year where the team maybe doesn't have that much to worry about in the regular season is what keeps you motivated. It's what keeps you playing hard in December when you know you're going to make the playoffs anyway. So for that reason, Boston's going to be really good. Uh, They've got multiple guys who can create uh, their own shot. You know, I've talked to a number of scouts around the league and one-on-one creation, the analytics will tell you that one-on-one's bad, but one-on-one play has really become a focal point again in the NBA because of all the defensive switching. So you switch every play, your offense is not suddenly creating open looks for you. And so at the end, somebody just flat out has to beat their guy. That's really what it comes down to. And the best teams have multiple guys that can do that. The Celtics have five guys that can do that. And on top of that, they've got the deepest bench in the league. They're running out Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier, you know, Marcus Morris, Aaron Baines. They're running out basically what I believe would be a playoff team in the East off their bench. If you, if you had a team in the East that consisted of Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier, Marcus Morris, Aaron Baines, and say Daniel Tice, that team would make the playoffs. That's the backups in Boston. They're really, really good. They're really deep. They're well coached. The final takeaway that I took from Boston was the leadership of Kyrie. You know, for, for all of the talent in Boston, they don't have championship experience outside of Kyrie. He's the only guy who's ever been to the finals. He's the only guy who's ever played under the level of expectations that the Celtics are going to be playing under this year. And that's a whole new way of doing business. So Kyrie told us a story in Boston where in his fourth year, in Cleveland. To that point, he had played three years, and he said, in his words, the only way he knew how to play basketball was to roll out the ball and go play. Just pure talent. No nuance, no film study to speak of, no greater understanding of, of the game and the shots that you're getting and why you're getting them and matchups. None of that. But then LeBron came back, and the whole equation changed for Kyrie. Now the expectations were to win a championship and nothing else. And no longer could he just roll the ball out and play. Then he said he started studying film with Mike Miller, with James Jones, with LeBron. The veterans kind of expedited his learning curve and took him from a talented player who could physically do anything on the court to a guy who now started studying the game, studying matchups, studying film, being a smart basketball player. And he became a championship player under those kinds of expectations. And that's what he's going to do now for Jason Tatum, for Jalen Brown. Even Gordon Hayward and Al Horford, they played in a lot of big games. But they never played in games as big as the ones the Celtics intend on playing in this year. 
Kyrie's the only guy who's played under this level of expectations, and he's really taken on that leadership role. He's, he's a smart guy. You could talk basketball with him all day, and I don't think he's any more that player that I think for a while got saddled with that reputation of he'll put up a ton of numbers. He's crazy talented, but, you know, is he a winner? Is he going to make other <laughs> players better? He is, and he's going to. Wow, I feel like this interview is a pep talk. You got me even more pumped for the season, and I was already extremely excited. <laughs> well, I'm happy to do it. Thanks again, Brad. Enjoy the season. All right.